Let me offer a word of appreciation to your pastor, Dr. Barkley, and the session here at Sovereign Grace for the invitation to be with you. It is great to be in North Carolina. It is always great to be away from Philadelphia in this time of year. I must confess my uh, sorrow over my Tar Heels not being in the NCAA tournament, but I would rather be here even if they were. So it is a delight to be with you tonight. Before we get into our text, let me just frame our conference a little bit this way. I, I guess I'll begin with an illustration. When I was a freshman in college, I went to one of my first classes that was held in one of those giant lecture halls. And it was probably the second or third week of class in political science, which I had very little interest in. And the chairs in this particular lecture hall were those theater-style seats. And I found myself getting a little bit more and more comfortable in that seat as the professor was up front pontificating his profundities. And he began to sound a bit like Charlie Brown's teacher, wah-wah, wah-wah, wah-wah. Well, suddenly, I met the hypnagogic jerk. Now, that is not a descriptor of the unpleasant guy sitting next to me. A hypnagogic jerk is that involuntary reaction that your body suffers when you're falling asleep in an uncomfortable position. And I lurched, and my clipboard went airborne, and it came crashing down on the floor, and all the heads in the auditorium turned and looked at me. It was a bit like one of those Southwest Airlines commercials. So you want to get away. (laughs) We are, as ministers, as teachers, not strangers to those falling asleep. In church even, you know who you are. (laughs) Better yet, Bill knows who you are. (laughs) But as we approach the subject of missions... I would suggest to you that the church has fallen asleep. It is interesting that the Apostle Paul and others in the New Testament are actually not so concerned that we fall asleep in the church service as they are that we fall asleep in service of the church, in the calling that Christ has given to his church to go and make disciples, I actually want to say thank you as we begin because you are a dying breed, churches that still have annual missions conferences. There's a reason for that as we have become increasingly comfortable in the West, we have become increasingly tone deaf to the scriptures and all that they teach us, including about missions. We just sang in that final hymn before the sermon about the the risk of us falling asleep. By the way, I didn't tell Bill to pick that hymn. The church has the risk that we fall asleep to the great calling to proclaim the message of the gospel to the nations. 
And in our times together, starting tonight and then tomorrow morning and tomorrow evening, we want to really consider the very heartbeat of God. We'll find tonight that missions is actually grounded in the love of God. And that there is a love like no other. Tomorrow morning we will look at the high point of missions in the Old Testament. Arguably in the entirety of the scriptures, Psalm 67 where we will see a prayer like no other. And then tomorrow evening, we will open up that very familiar text that is really the culmination of this love that's like no other and that prayer that is like no other. And there is a calling to the church that is like no other that we find in Matthew 28 and what we call the Great Commission. It was John Murray in a very famous article that he wrote, a a former professor at Westminster Theological Seminary, that says, the love of God is the spring from which atonement flows. The question is, why does God save? He saves because he loves. The very motivation for the calling of the church to mission is the unsearchable goodness of God, the kindness of God. And we find that before us tonight in the text that I would like you to turn to now. In Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, is actually one long sentence. But we're going to take a chunk of it, the opening section in verses 3 through 6. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Hear now the word of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us, For adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Would you bow your head in prayer with me, please? Oh God, in these moments that we pause having just read from your revelation to your church, having read from the very words that you have given us for our nourishment, for our understanding, oh God, I pray that by your Spirit tonight, that you would unfold these words before us, that they would guide our hearts, constrain our hearts, and compel us with you who loves us beyond measure. We pray, O God, that you would encourage your people tonight through this time. Help us to love because you have first loved us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a love. It is a love like no other. And if you tonight are a child of God by grace through faith, In Jesus Christ, you are loved beyond measure. 
In this particular text in Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul is giving us really a vision into the heart of the triune God. If you read all of this section in verses 3 through 14, you would see the plan and purpose of the Father, the execution of that plan in and through His beloved Son, and the application of that Son's work to the church by the Holy Spirit. There is a Trinitarian core to what Paul writes about in Ephesians chapter 1. But as he focuses here, he lifts us to heaven itself where we see this great master plan, the great counsel of God concerning his love for his people. Imagine with me that it's the 4th of July. You go downtown with me into Philadelphia to go see the parade. You bring your small children with you, or you bring your grandchildren with you. And as you walk up to the street where the parade is about to be on display, your, your children or your grandchildren are, are walking along. And as soon as they get up to the line of people at the street, all they see is the backsides of others. What kind of parade is this, Dad? What kind of parade is this, Grandma? So what do you do? Well, you pick up that child and you raise them and you put that child on your shoulders. And all of a sudden, the great panorama of the parade is laid before the eyes of this child. And this is precisely what God does for the Apostle Paul here. Paul sees what he wouldn't otherwise see. He has been lifted up to see into the very holy place of heaven in the intra-Trinitarian fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he sees the master plan of God, the great counsel of God for the redeeming of sinners, for the adoption of sons, for predestined people to become the family of God. He sees the glorious plan of God for his love to be expressed and applied to his redeemed. This God and Father, this Son, this Holy Spirit, this is the triune God. This is the God as we see in the Psalter. This is the God who is in the heavens and he does as he pleases. But what is astonishing as we read this text, as Paul is overflowing, as he has entered into heaven's presence and now asks us to join him, We see that God delights in blessing us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That he's chosen us from before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through his beloved son in whom he is well pleased. The first point I want us to capture here is that as Paul contemplates the love of God, he realizes that this is a love that is literally out of this world. It, it is a love not that doesn't conjure up from our own hearts, our own ideas, our own intellects, our own experience. This is a love that comes from heaven to earth. This is a love that is a manifestation of the the beautiful fellowship of the triune God whereby he calls us into that fellowship by his grace, his redemption, and his mercy. This is a love that is not humanly created. It's not humanly instituted. 
It is a love that is literally out of this world. Pure love, dear ones, comes to us long before it comes from us. We love because he first loved us. This is a love that is not tied up in the fickleness and limitations of human unpredictability. This is a love that overflows from the God who is love. This is a love that is out of this world. You see, there is a love. It is a love like no other. And if you tonight are a child of God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, you are love beyond measure. Paul also tells us, verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Note that. This was a plan and a purpose that was before the foundation of the world. I can't think of that phrase without thinking of my father-in-law who is now in glory. He used to talk about himself as being older than dirt. Well, God's love, dear ones, is older than dirt. His love for you precedes dirt itself. Let me frame it for you according to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Day one, day two, day three, day four. Before God said, let there be light, he said, I love you. This is a love that is older than dirt. I did a little research through that incredibly stellar resource called Wikipedia. And I learned of the marriage of Daniel Bakeman and Susan Brewer. Daniel Bakeman was born in 1759 and Susan Brewer was born in 1758. They were married on August the 29th, 1772. They were married for over 91 years before Susan died in 1863 at age 107. Now that is a long time. That's a long love. The sorrows, the sadnesses, the joys, the months, the seasons, the years. Imagine 91 years. That ain't nothing. Sorry, my North Carolinian stuff just kind of came out there. That's not anything. God's love is eternal love. God's love exceeds that love in every way. It is older than dirt. I love the phrase from the great Princeton biblical theologian Gerhardus Voss who said, God will never stop loving you. Why? Because he never started. He has always loved you. 
You see, there's no ceasing to that love because it is from eternity past, before there was a creation, before there was dirt, before there was heavens and earth, God had set his affection on his people. It is an eternal love. It's been said that there are three stages to life. I'm clearly in the last third, but the first third is that you are concerned all the time about what people think about you. The second third of your life, you don't really care what people think about you. And then that final third of your life, you discover nobody was thinking about you in the first place. (laughs) Not so with God. He's always loved his people. So why the dirt? Because it is on the stage of human history. According to the divine counsel that God the Father would send forth God the Son, who would be born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who were under the law. The whole stage of human history is defined as the place on which the elective love of God is going to be on display. History is the stage in which not that God watches you or looks at you and says, yeah, I think I'll love that one. No, he loved you forever. History is the stage on which you come to know and experience that love personally, communally. And yes, tonight as you are gathered as God's people, this is a foretaste of eternity to come when the people of God will gather and relish the love of God, celebrate the love of God for all eternity together. Consider this. God has loved you. This is a love that is out of this world, but it is also a love that is older than dirt itself. See, there's a love. It's a love like no other. If you are a child of God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, you are loved beyond measure. Thirdly, note the end of verse 4 and verse 5, he in love predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of of his will. Verses 7 and following go on to describe that work of his son, that beloved son in whom he is well pleased. We see that in the way in which Isaiah puts this, that it pleased God to crush his son. Why? So that he might embrace you and show you his love. God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Paul says in Romans. This is a love that spares no expense. I've seen a number of young children already tonight and delight. The older I get, the more I delight in youth. I love to see children singing in a service like this. It just brings joy to my heart. There's no thing that creates greater panic in the heart of a parent than when a child goes missing. 
Even something as simple as being in a mall where you're in a store and you think your child's by your side and then he or she is out of sight. All you can do in that moment is search for your child. You look, you hunt, you pursue. You go after that child. There's no rest, no pauses, no distractions until that child is found and clasped. This is the way in which we see the pursuit of God. He spares no expense in coming after you and me. Of course, there is a breakdown in this analogy. There's no panic in God. There's no chance that he'll fumble. But the principle's the same. God pursues. His love comes after you, and he spares no expense. He was so committed to demonstrating that love to you, to showing that love to you, that it pleased him to crush his son on your behalf. So that when Christ on the cross cried out to his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The answer is so that the love of God might be shown to you and to me. The love of God spares no expense. God so loved the world that he sent his son. Yes, this love may be older than dirt, but this love takes on that dirt. This Jesus takes on your sin. He takes on my sin. Bears the penalty for our sin. Why? Because God loves you. At the center of God's love in Christ is his love for us. Love for you is love for you in this beloved Son. This Jesus Christ in whom we have all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Paul will go so far as into Romans 8 at the very end when he asks this question, what shall separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? Answer, absolutely nothing. Why? Well, theologically, it's because you are loved in Christ. And for God to stop loving you means for him to stop loving God the Son. God's love spares no expense. It is a love that is out of this world. It is a love that, that is is older than dirt, but it is a love that takes on that dirt. It's a love that takes on the consequences of your sin, the guilt of your sin. See, there's a love. It is a love like no other. And as a child of God, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, you are loved beyond measure. But this is a love that does even more. Look again at verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. There is a power, a conquering power to the love of God. It is a purifying power. 
Jesus in the Beatitudes says this, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. But the psalmist asked the question, Who among us is pure in heart? Who can ascend the holy hill of the Lord? Who is the one who meditates on his law day and night? Who delights himself in the Lord? None of us. But by the power of the blood of Christ, the resurrection power of this Son of God who is now seated at the right hand of God the Father has sent forth His Spirit. That Spirit draws us into union with this Christ who not only is our justifier but our sanctifier. He is our cleanser so that we become holy and blameless before Him. You see, God's fight is not just for us, but in us. It is a love that is a powerful love. It is a conquering love. Jeremiah reminds us that our sin is worse than we know. The heart is desperately wicked, he says. Who can know it? Do you realize that God's love is even better than you know your own sin and it's being forgiven? You are forgiven even of that which you do not know. The power of this love, this force of this love is a conquering love so that we can enter into fellowship with this God that is laid before us in this glorious text in Ephesians chapter 1. We are loved, as Paul says here at the end of verse 6, in the beloved. (laughs) We are loved in the one who is the beloved, and that beloved by virtue of his life, death, resurrection on behalf of his church delivers to you not only a right standing before God in justification, but he brings you and me to a thorough cleansing. So on that last day, when we see him, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. There is a power and efficacy of this love to take the sin, even those secret, dark, hidden sins that are invisible to us, and we are fully cleansed by this love. That, dear ones, is astonishing. This is a love that spares no expense, but it's also a love that wins. It doesn't just win you for him, it wins you into him, where you're drawn into a beautiful fellowship. It is an unrelenting love. There's a love. It's a love like no other. And if you are a child of God by grace through faith tonight, you are loved beyond measure. Look at verse 5. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. If you are having a tough time tonight going to sleep, um, pull out your home insurance policy and start reading. Well, maybe on second thought, that's not a great idea because you'll discover there's about one paragraph of what is covered 
And then there are multiple pages of what isn't. Page after page of exceptions, of exclusions. God's love stands. God's love is unending, unbending, irreversible. It is a love that covers all forever. He tells us here that we are predestined for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. That means that we are brought into God's family irreversibly, no exception clauses. If you are a child of God by grace through faith tonight, you belong to the family of God and you will never not belong. To that family. There is no out clause. You may feel inadequate, but you find your inadequacy met with the full adequacy of Jesus Christ. You may think that there's sins that God couldn't possibly forgive. Not so. If you are his child, you are fully forgiven. You may feel distant from God, but you are not. You are in his presence. And as Paul is telling us in this text tonight, that we are lifted up with the Apostle Paul into the glorious heavenly places and seeing the full counsel of God on display, a God who loves to love you in his Son. And manifest that love to us by the outpouring of his spirit. In Christ, it's all covered. Without exception. See, God's love is out of this world. It's a love that is older than dirt. It's a love that spares no expense. It's a love that wins over your sin and mine. It is a love that stands. So why? For a missions conference, would I begin here? Because this is where it all begins. You see, there, in the love of God is the the very source of mission. Why is there salvation? Because God is love. Why is there mission? Because he's committed to manifesting that love to sinners from every tribe, tongue, and nation. You see, this love of God in Christ is the very font, the very fountain, the very spring of mission. And dear ones, as we will see tomorrow that this love of God that is outpoured on us is a love that is not only to come to us, but it is a love that is to come through us. And we are to be sent on that divine errand of mercy of proclaiming this glorious news about this love to the nations. And in whatever ways that we in the West have fallen asleep, I pray that our time together in these next couple of days will be a wake-up call for some of us and a rejuvenation for us. I want you to have more than five-hour energy about missions. 
You see, the love of God, there is a love that is like no other. And as a child of God, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, you are loved beyond measure. Go and proclaim that love, that love that is like no other. Bow with me as we close in prayer. Great God in heaven, these words are terribly inadequate to describe the nature, the scope, the height, the depth, the breadth, the length of your love, even as Paul prays in Ephesians 3 that we might know the unknowable, grasp the ungraspable. Oh God, show us afresh the magnanimity of your love, the beauty of your love, the extent of your love, and constrain us with that love so that we will love because you have first loved us. Oh God, I thank you for this congregation. Thank you for your salvation that is on display amongst these people. May they, as recipients of grace, become wonderfully faithful instruments of proclaiming that grace, that love, that is found alone in the beloved Son in whom you are well pleased, in whose name we pray. Amen.